um, external evidence of Jesus and his followers through these ancient sources, um, which is really fascinating to me. Today, I want to uh, push a little bit more on the evidence for Jesus, okay? And let's walk through this slide to get that started, evidence of Jesus and his followers. Uh, the historical evidence of the life and death of Jesus. It's really critical. Uh, I, I, again, we all appreciate C.S. Lewis. Jesus is either Lord, he's a lunatic, he's a liar. Others are adding another L word, legend. It's just all folklore and myth, but that's certainly not the case. So here's some statements on why we have tremendous confidence in the, his, the historical basis of Jesus. We covered a few weeks ago the, the Greek manuscripts. There's 5,800 plus Greek manuscripts on the New Testament. You've got to understand that is a lot for that old of a document in comparison to other uh, ancient writings. This is amazing. When you add supporting uh, documents from other languages around the Greco-Roman world, there's another 15,000. So it's amazing the manuscript support we have for the life and death of Jesus. We mentioned the external evidence. We covered that last Sunday. The internal evidence, I'll develop this in the future. The nature of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and why those four Gospels are absolutely essential to your faith. It is eyewitness testimony. And then uh, Bart Ehrman, I know Justin probably is the only one that knows who this guy is. He's at a chapel hill. Bart Ehrman is one of the most liberal New Testament scholars out there. Absolutely liberal, all right? I, 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 weigh, I weigh critically anything Ehrman says, but he says this with extreme confidence. Jesus lived and was crucified. Unquestioned. Unquestioned. Another extremely liberal uh, New Testament scholar, Gerard Ludman, uh, formerly at Vanderbilt. I have some of his, his works. Uh, Gerd is so liberal, he's an atheist. <laughs> he's an atheist. He's not a Christian, but he's a New Testament scholar, and he's not even a Christian. He says the death of Jesus uh, is absolutely indisputable as a result of crucifixion. Indisputable. All right. It happened. <laughs> okay, it happened. And, and lastly, I want to talk about archaeology. So let's dig into this. You're going to see pictures. It's some amazing stuff, and the whole point of this is to show you there is evidence that you and I can look at, consider and go, you know what? My faith is not some mythic fairy tale. Uh, as Sam Harris would say, your faith is really a form of mental illness and believing in Jesus to give you eternal life, eternal life is equivalent to the idea that if you eat frozen yogurt, you become invisible. That's literally what Sam Harris said, I quote him. No, 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 that's wrong. Sam is wrong, okay? He's profoundly wrong. Look at some of the archaeological evidence. Uh, this is known as the Jesus boat or of the ancient Galilee boat. There was a, a significant drought in Israel, northern Israel, and the Sea of Galilee receded so much that it exposed some of the bed, the seabed. And a couple of uh, amateur archaeologists, fishermen, a couple of brothers found this boat. It dates to the first century. It's about 27 feet long. This is not necessarily the boat that Jesus was asleep in, but it would be very similar to what he would uh, uh, 
was sleeping in when there was a storm or when he walked on the water and approached the men in this kind of a boat. Um, another discovery that's fascinating, this is the Sergius Paulus inscription out of Acts 13.7, uh, simply documenting that uh, the scriptures say that this man, Sergius, was a very intelligent man and he intentionally sought out Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. So an ancient inscription is verifying externally a historical reference in the book of Acts. Uh, this is the pool of Siloam. You remember the story in Acts 9 where there's a crippled man and he'd been lying on a mat for 38 years. And as this, the scriptures tell us that an angel of the Lord would come and stir the waters and the first one in the water would be healed. But he was so crippled that he could never get there in time and someone would, would always get there ahead of him. And in his bitterness and in, his, in the, the, the hard realities of his life, Jesus, when he approached him, asked him a very wise question. He said, do you want to get better? That's very, very important. So anyway, there's a picture of the Pool of Siloam. Uh, the Erastus inscription, uh, this is based out of Romans 16, 23. Seven-inch tall letters probably filled with bronze. Uh, another reference the ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest who oversaw the trial of Jesus. Uh, an ossuary is a real fancy word for bone box. All right. And so when the, the forensic scientists studied this, they found the bones of about a 60-year-old man that would match up right with the first century. And by the way, uh, uh, the, the uh, name Caiaphas was on the box as well. Temple inscriptions. Now, you remember when the Romans, Vespasian, and the Roman authorities came in and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70? They destroyed the temple. In fact, the, teach, the prophecy of Jesus came true. Not one stone was left on the other. It's literally, it was just rubble. If you can imagine that, this pristine, this amazing temple reduced to rubble. They found, archaeologists found two inscriptions. One is that the warning inscription, and this, this was placed in an area that was uh, guarded off with railings and rope and things. And this inscription said, it was placed there, if you cross this line, you will be executed. And your death is yet your own, uh, based on your own foolish actions. Your decision to cross this line is on you, not on us, but you will be executed. Because the, the, the Jews believed the temple was so holy <clears throat> it was so holy that, that a, a, a Gentile, an unclean person, would never be allowed to cross the marking point where this is only for Jews who are holy and clean. The other is the trumpeting inscription, and it just simply marks that in the temple structure, when the trumpet was blown, it would be at this particular location. All right, just a few more. The Nazareth inscription, this is fascinating. Uh, this is dated to be around 41 to 54 B, uh, AD. And it says there will be punishment by death for anybody who steals the body from a tomb. Soak that one up. Execution for anybody caught stealing a body from a tomb. What do you know about grave robbers in, in this era? Anybody? What do they want? What are the interests? If you're going to rob a grave, what do they want? Good. Do they care about the body? No. no, not at all. Not at all. Why would the inscription say anybody caught stealing a body from a grave 
punishable by death. Why? Danny, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that was the myth that was purported to justify a fiasco, a radical Roman fiasco, that how can you post a guard at a tomb and a body be stolen? stolen? So fascinating. Um, the Gallio inscription from Delphi, Delphi uh, confirms that Gallio was in fact proconsul, a governing official in Achaia, Acts 18, 12 and 17, dates to about the spring of AD 52. Uh, the pilot stone confirming Pontius Pilate was the prefect, a ruling governor in Judea. Um, Justin, you may have seen this. Have you seen this one personally? <gasps> Can I get your autograph? Please. People, <laughs> you are looking at the oldest known uh, Greek manuscript that we have, dating less than 100 years away from the time of writing. This is from a section of John's Gospel, John 18. It's uh, the fragment P52. To get that close is absolutely amazing. It's about that big, yeah, yeah. All right, this is the heel bone of Yohanan of, of Hagal, Hagkal, pronounced that correctly. A man was crucified in the first century. The nail was embedded through the heel bone and testifies to the violent nature of his death. Um, they, one of the ways that they would crucify the victim, we normally think that when we look at the, uh, the pictures and all, that you have one foot over the other, and like, the, the idea is that they're driving it through both at the same time, but it's not the case. They would spike a heel there and spike a heel on both sides of the vertical beam. That's what they would do. So the whole point of that is just documenting that this is uh, historical evidence that death by crucifixion was in fact practiced at this time. And, we know, and by the way, we know from uh, uh, Roman records that crucifixion was actually very, very common. And literally thousands, like at the turn of the century, eighty uh, zero, uh, literally thousands of Jews were crucified enlined the roads of Jerusalem as a sign of Roman might and Roman power. All right, everybody turn to Acts 17. Acts 17. So, Paul is doing mission work and there's really interesting language that describes how Paul goes about sharing the gospel. This is what it says. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay. According to Paul's custom, he visited them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a significant number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar 
And they attacked the house of Jason and were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. All right, a couple things I want you to focus on. First of all, can you imagine using the Old Testament to introduce somebody to Jesus Christ? Okay. According to Paul's custom, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, the Old Testament. If you were going to share the gospel from the Old Testament, where would you go? Where would you turn? Isaiah. Isaiah, like Isaiah 53 that we'll cover Wednesday night. Anybody else? What's that? Psalms. You said Psalms? Yeah. Yeah, there's actually several Psalms. Anybody else? Where would you go? Genesis 1. Genesis 1, sure. You can start there, yeah. So Paul, and the, the, the Greek terms that are describing the way Paul is talking to them, it's that he's almost like he's saying, okay, here's argument one, right there, sit that before you. Here's argument two, sit that before you. Here's argument three. It's like he, he's walking them through logical, well-reasoned uh, information to literally persuade them, to guide them in making a decision of who Jesus Christ is. He explained and gave evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, uh, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What does it mean that he's the Christ? What does that mean, the Christ? What does it mean? What's that? Messiah. Yeah, it, it, it literally means to be covered with oil. You're anointed. The one who's been anointed and identified as the Savior. As the Messiah, yeah? The one that's set apart. Regarding Jason, this is really curious. You have to appreciate the, what's going on here. Um, why, did they, why did they get a hold of Jason and his buddies and drag him out in front of the crowd? In all likelihood, what's that? Okay, good, yeah, yeah, exactly. Jason, in all likelihood, converted to Jesus uh, early on when Paul started reasoning and, and giving teaching. And he welcomed Paul into his house. Now, in ancient Mediterranean practice, when you welcome somebody into your home and you share a meal with them, what are you doing? You're, it's, it's an honor-shame exchange. You're absorbing who they are, their risks of honor-shame risk, and they're doing the same to you. It's, you believe it's worth it to take these men in. And you're going to absorb who they are, and they're going to absorb who you are, and you share the meal together. And so it is now past guilt by association. Where is this dude named Paul? Where's Silas? They were angry. They're upsetting our city. They're, they're disturbing the status quo, and uh, we want to get them. We want to arrest them. Well, they couldn't find them. We don't, we don't know where Paul went. He inside us slipped out the back door. But they did get hold of Jason. 
and those that were with him. And then they made him give a pledge. What do you think that's about? To give a pledge. Yep. Jason paid them off. And then in the paying off that vow, they vowed that they would no longer be responsible or ever invite Paul back in to do that. How's that for, for, it's getting real, people. (laughs) It's getting real. So, explaining and reasoning from the scriptures uh, that Jesus is the Christ. All right, so, let's let's own this together as, as people. We are not foolish. We are not, we don't believe in fairy tale myths. We are not foolish. What in, in what we've covered this morning and over the last few Sundays, what is have you discovered that has built up your faith that has encouraged you? Yes. I think for me, Pastor, it's been um, studying the prophecies in the Bible and beginning to see these things coming to life in our time today. Yeah. You know, we can see the mark of the beast getting set in and ready to go. With these things have never been able to happen before without the technology that we have today. Yeah. So the Book of Revelation and like. Yeah. Zachariah, Zephaniah, some of these books. Yeah. I'm seeing them come to life. Sure, sure. That's, that's so good, Jesus. Yeah. These are dark times. Yeah. These are very dark times. Someone else. What builds up your faith? What makes your faith strong? Um, the idea of the, hist- the archaeological evidence, the manuscript evidence, uh, history verifying the life and death of Jesus. Kathy? All of it. Yeah. It's like God has all the bases covered. No yeah. Yeah. You can turn to anything and there is um, evidence. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. You know, we can't prove God's existence in that God didn't fit in the test tube. But boy, you know, it's interesting at my house, um, you know, Lisa and I and, and the adults there, we can clean it. And it's amazing. It looks great. It looks great. And then after a few hours with the grandkids, guess what? (laughs) And they could be gone. But the evidence that they were there. (laughs) Kids are gone. They're they're, they're kept. Well, I was going to add to that is that there's so so many different pieces of evidence. How many years have passed and yet it's still so strong. Yeah. yeah, Some things have been lost, but enough things have not been lost and carried on. So, and that's only God making sure that that happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can't get God to test you, but boy, the evidence of him being around, whew, it's just, it's undeniable. Dang. I think also just getting the word of people that aren't believers, yeah. not being, still saying, well, this, these things still happen, Jesus, yeah. Jesus is still crucified, Jesus still existed, yeah. all that kind of stuff, because, you know, it's easy to say, well, the only believers are saying it, doesn't make it as strong as if people yeah. don't believe also admit, yeah, this, sure. this stuff happened too. Sure, sure. Uh, I think, Dana, thank you for one on Acts 17. Just because we share it doesn't mean anybody's going to believe. 
They, they still have choice. And we can logically line it out. There's number one argument. There's number two argument. There's number three. And lay out all the evidence and pray and be as genuine in our hearts as possible. And it doesn't mean they're going to convert. You know? uh, that's something that only God, God does. Only God. So, Anybody else on building up our faith and dealing with our debts? Yeah. The testimony of the apostles. Yeah. Why would you die for a lie? Yeah. Yeah, and, and even more specifically, Lee, it's not just that they died for a lie because there's a lot of people that made foolish decisions based on what they thought to be true. But you're right. Why would they die for something that wasn't a lie? They knew it wasn't a lie. Yeah, I mean, that is a very, very weighty argument. So, um, David. That ties into what Christ said. He said, the world hates you, not because it hates you. Yeah, headed in first. That's good, Justin. Just, I've been struck by how all of this, all the evidence, is an invitation to a relationship with God. And just like you can't have so much evidence that means that you know you don't have a relationship with God, you still have to engage in a relationship with God. And the whole process of examining all this stuff is an act of a relationship with God and exploring it asking questions and is that really true or is this really true and I'm just struck by how God is gracious and he wants us to have a real full relationship and he actually cares enough to come in history you know he could have I don't know he could have revealed the gospel by telepathy or something right but Jesus actually came in history yeah. God came in history yeah what he's saying is important do you know what deism is anybody deism does that ring a bell deism the philosophy, what's that? It has to do with God. It has to do with God, right? That's good. Anybody? Deism? Yeah, it's the idea that God made everything. So it sounds good, right? God made everything. But then what did he do? He left. He left. He's gone. He's out making some other universe, some other place. He's gone. No interaction with the created order. It's also called the clockmaker theory, where, the, where God created the earth like a clock. He wound it up. He spun it out there, and it's just winding down. And he, he set the physical laws in motion, and that's it. That's all we get. That's called deism. Did you know a lot of our founding fathers in the nation, uh, as the U.S. was forming, they were deists. Yeah. But guess what? That's not true. Justin nailed it. Jesus, God, got involved a plethora of times in time and space, in history. He got involved. He got down, got the dirt under his fingernails, and, and brought the Messiah to us. So uh, someone else, I think. Did I miss anybody? We're good. Yeah, Nathan? Yeah. Um, so there's this um, principle that I really like called the, the Lindy effect. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but basically the idea is like um, that... If you like some new thing about some new technology or a new idea or whatever, and if you want to uh, get an idea of how long that thing will be around, the best predictor is how long it's been around in the past. So if something has been only been around for a year, it'll likely only survive another year. If something's been around for a hundred years, it'll likely survive another hundred years. So the highest probability is that you're somewhere in the middle of its lifespan. So you could be a Roman, you know, philosopher or whatever, 
uh, shortly after Jesus' crucifixion and say, oh yeah, this, this uh, Christian thing, it'll, it'll blow over in a few years. Right, right. But now, 2,000 years later, it's a lot harder to argue that it was yeah. just some this thing. Yeah. Yes, Nathan, that is very good. Uh, we've been heavily influenced by Roman and Greek culture. Uh, do you know what a senator is in the Senate? That's all out of Roman culture. Anybody here go to a gymnasium to work out? Welcome to Greek culture. And yes, Nathan, here we are, you know, 3,000 years out, and we're, we're uh, working out of the gyms and doing all those things. So that's so good. All right, let's shift it just a little bit. How do we deal with our doubts? What are, what, are, what are some common doubts that we deal with? Or how would you counsel us on how to deal with a doubt? Should our doubts make us run away from God and hide in shame? Why? Why? He, he, wants, he wants us to chase him down. He wants us to seek him. He's not What's that? He's not surprised. Yeah, that Dale, that is so good. Yeah. In fact, the psalm says that God knows that we are made of dust. How frail we really are. Yeah, he really does. Jeff? Doubt is a great tool because it indicates that you haven't uh, been overwhelmed by a need to control everything in your life. Yeah. We seek truth here, and we should never be afraid of that journey. Yeah. Because if it's true, it will allow itself to be proved out through whatever crucible we put. Yeah. Very next section after Thessalonica and all that is Berea, where they took what Paul said and they went to the scriptures and backtracked. Yeah. Yeah. There's no condemnation in scripture of reviewing, scrutinizing the things that you see, you yeah. hear, you believe. Yeah. That even folks to the opposite of us, we should be interested in what they're saying because again, if if it's true what we say, it will bear itself out. Yeah. If, what the, if what somebody who disagrees with us says is an attack, it will falter like an attack will falter. Gamaliel for saying, these men are of God, you're not going to stop them. If there's men, they'll fail. Well, what happened? Don't be afraid to scrutinize things to see if they're true. Don't be afraid of doubts. God has used doubt in my life so many times I can't count to bring me to a higher level of trust. Yeah, yeah. I'm not scared by it. Yeah, yeah, that's so good, Joe. Thank you. I know you all know this. You're smart people. If we had all the answers, Joe, if we had God in a box with a nice ribbon and we had it all worked out and we could put him in a museum, what would happen? Faith becomes nothing at that point. Yeah, and of course, it wouldn't be gone. Yeah, so, so it's good that we wrestle. It's good that we struggle. And... Uh, that's been so good. So, anybody else? Um, anybody else? Okay. All right. I know you know the story in John where Thomas had doubted and said, "Look, I'm not going to believe unless I see his hands and feet." And that's a that is such a profound, a profound teaching to me. Turn to Hebrews chapter twelve. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since also we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking only to Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lose your faith. So, uh, I have profound comfort, and I'm confessing my doubts that I've had for years, Joe, plethora of them, that Jesus is the originator, the author, and the protector, perfecter of my faith, not me. I am, I am the clay and he is the potter. I am just the branch and he is the vine. And that relationship brings life to me. So anybody else about faith and doubts and the evidence, anything else you want to do to encourage us? Anybody else? All right. Really, uh, yeah, I have to say one thing too, just from all personal things. We, we are so quick to forget. God has a little praying. Yes. Yeah, that's good. David, in the book of Revelation, the first few chapters that address the seven churches, to one of the churches, he says, you need to repent and return to your first love. You got to go back to Jesus. Yeah, got to go back, stay close. So, okay, yeah, Preston. <laughs> That's so wise, Preston. Uh, if I could support what you're saying, I would say that one of the if Satan has weapons in his toolbox that he uses against us, shame is perhaps one of the greatest, right? Because when you experience shame, you tend to feel, you feel rejection of some sort, and so it's almost like you beat yourself, sabotaging. You beat yourself to the punch. When you feel shame, you pull away. The very thing you fear is what you do to yourself with shame. And so you pull away. And that is what Satan wants us to do. To feel shame, feel guilt, real or perceived, pathogenic or not, but feel so much shame that we we won't go to God. We won't go to God at all. And and once we do that, and once we he isolates us, what happens to a Christian who's isolated? What's that? Bad stuff. Bad stuff. Okay. You want to hear about some bad stuff? You got a dumpster on the other side of the wall out here, right? Everybody uses right around here. So it, it's inevitable that when I go to carry trash out, I find a raccoon in the dumpster. Okay. And I, I know you think of me as a big, tough man with no emotions. I feel so sorry for that, those little critters in there. So... Uh, you know, I 
trying to get ready for the service. Well, I gotta get the trash out, you know, you gotta get things ready. So I take, the, sure enough, there's a raccoon, you know, in there. And that little guy, I think it's a juvenile, I think, he's got his nose jammed up in the corner and he's in a ball like this and he won't even look at me. Now the other ones I've rescued, they got a little life in them, a little fight, and it's like, hey, what are you doing here? And can you help? And can I help him? All right, sorry, buddy, I'm going get to get the ladder. We're going to get you out of here. So I get the ladder, I drop it down. He won't move. So I get a long pole, and I'm like, dude, you're going to die. It's going to be triple digit heat index. you got to have water. And so I'm literally moving him. I didn't hurt him. I moved him. I was gentle, but I'm moving and poking. And he just goes, Jim, right up in that corner. And it's like he won't move either paralyzed with fear or already so dehydrated there's not a whole lot of life left in him. I don't know. Okay. So I'm thinking that one of you handsome, brave men should jump in the dumpster after the service and we're going to pray and lay hands on you first. You do. <laughs> you got guts, girl. Yeah. Anybody know how to rescue a raccoon? You might want to do that for service. So, so you know what? I, I, I share that simply because of this. If Satan can fill us with shame and fear and, and so that we're beat between our ears, we're so defeated, we will we'll jam up in a corner, we'll hide. And at that point, the very thing that is there to save us, we reject. We'll overlook it, we'll ignore it, we don't see it for what it really is. And so John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, have ears to hear the truth. The gospel is, is, is not complicated. The gospel, I'm gonna, how about this? Let's, let's put it down on the kids' level. A, B, C. A, B, C. The gospel, here it is. A, we have to admit that there's something radically broken inside of us. Radically broken inside of us. Hate. Anger. Bitter, pick the sin. It doesn't matter what it is. There's something radically broken inside of us. Pride. Well, talk about a Goliath, man. Pride. Thinking you're better than somebody else or, or whatever the case may be. We have to admit that there is a radical problem. The soul, the, I, I, Jeremiah, the soul that sins will die. Isaiah, your sin has separated you from God. So that he will not hear your prayers. There is a serious, serious problem. And if we can't A, admit it, then we have no need of a savior. If there's nothing wrong, who needs a savior? There's nothing wrong. B, you have got to believe the only answer to that sin problem is Jesus Christ. Buddha didn't die on the cross for you. I'm a former Catholic. I can poke at the Catholics. The Pope didn't die on the cross for you. <laughs> you know, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, he didn't die on the cross for anybody. Who else can I, uh, Buddha, the Hindu guy, name it. Nobody died on the cross for you except Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus Christ die? Well, one of the eyewitnesses is a man named John the Baptizer. John chapter 1, verse 28, verse 35. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God 
It takes away the sin of the world. Second Timothy, Paul teaches us there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. I remember going to Catholic confession. I remember kneeling down. I remember the red velvet everywhere and the curtains. And I remember the priest kind of dialing in God somehow. And then he said, all right, my son, confess your sins. I remember that. By the way, I appreciate the confessional booth. And that's something we miss in in the average Protestant church is you don't have any space for confession. And if you do, dear God, more shame. We know it's going to happen now. Um, But we have to learn to deal with this horrible sin issue. And you've got to believe that Jesus is the answer. But Jesus is the link to God, not a priest. Jesus is. We go directly to God now. The temple veil has been ripped from top to bottom. We now have access to the Holy of Holies. You've got to believe that the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The sin's done in secret. The sin's done in public. All unrighteousness. A, B, C. C. You have to, the scripture, you've got to call on the name of the Lord. You have to, you have to put this into words that, that is in your heart. It's like, Rachel, when you converted, Jesus, I can't, I can't do this. My life is a wreck. I am hellbound. I need your forgiveness. I want heaven. Please. It's a mystery. Step out of heaven. Step inside of me. And God sends his son. You're changed. You experience the new birth. It is amazing. You're converted. You're born again. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're now a son, a daughter. And it's all by faith. That's the ABC of the gospel. It's not complicated. Are you saved by works or saved by faith? You're saved by faith. Only by faith. If, that, if, you, if you've never known what it means to follow Jesus and be born again, I want you to see me after the service and we'll talk about it. We'll pray together. Um, if you have been born again, uh, chase hard after God. Take your doubts to him and say, God, hey, meet me here. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I feel like this is just folklore and man-made religion and conveniently penned by a lot of people. I don't know this is the living, breathing word of God. Teach me. Open up the word. Chase, chase him down. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 13. You seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. I love that. You'll find me. So, All right. I want to pray over you. We're going we're gonna to worship. Father, I love you and I thank you. Thank you that you have sent your son as the lamb, your lamb, that will take away the sin of the world. And that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses through Jesus, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Father, thank you so much for these things. Thank you for these dear people, my family, my friends. And I ask your blessing and grace upon them now. In Jesus' name, amen.